This week, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Al Rosenberg. There's so much coming your way, including Irish Catholic traditions, the benefits or not of turmeric tea, and what it's like living closer to death. I can't wait for you to listen to their story. And I wanted to let you know that there are some swear words used throughout the conversation that have not been edited out. All right, now on to the episode. Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. I'm Al Rosenberg. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a queer, trans, non-binary person who happens to also be the chief strategy officer at One Table. One Table is a national nonprofit that helps young adults build weekly Shabbat Friday night uh, dinner practices. And just to contextualize myself in the Jewish conversation, I suppose, I uh, wasn't really involved in Judaism before working in the Jewish world. I am a patrilineal Jew. Um, my father was adopted by Jews, and it took me working for Jewish nonprofits to really start giving myself the permission to dig deeper into Jewish spaces, Jewish practice. I ended up converting to conservative Judaism just a couple of years ago because I really wanted to have a foundation that wasn't offered to me as a child. And now I find that every day I'm like, yes, there's another Jewish thing that I want to dig into. Al and I worked together at one table and I distinctly remember being inspired by them when they were learning about Rosh Chodesh and Well Circles, which are Jewish practices for the new month. And then they actually went and hosted Well Circles and Rosh Chodesh Shabbat dinners. It's pretty cool to see learning being transformed into a lived Jewish practice. When I told Al what I was going to do around death, dying, and Judaism, they were so enthusiastic and very supportive immediately sending resources and people to connect with. I asked if they would share a little bit more about why. So on a shallow surface level, um, everything to me that is countercultural is exciting. And and I think that it's why I'm in the work I do now. Shabbat is countercultural. And also talking about death, being open about this topic that I think we've all really been taught is taboo um, is really exciting. And I think the dangers of politeness, of uh, following community norms, means that you can know someone for a really long time without actually ever knowing them. You never dig deeper than just the things you're supposed to say, the the rote responses to how are you, how is it going. Um, And when we break taboo, we break into taboo spaces, it allows us to go a little bit deeper in a way that I think otherwise would be Uh, really hard for people to naturally do. So giving people the opportunity um, to speak about something that they might find frightening or confusing or maybe have never dug into, I think that's something that Judaism as a faith that asks us to question things should be doing. And so the combination of death and and Judaism, I think, is, is the opportunity for a really rich field of possibility, discussion, learning, I mean, I think about like my own Jewish life, except for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the the high holidays. When have I ever talked about death 
in services? When has a rabbi ever spoken to me about that? You know, so much. Mostly, if you're going to temple, if you're the kind of Jew who's going to start doing that, or already does that, going for Shabbat services. And there's Mourner's Kaddish, which is usually in most spaces for the mourners. The community witnesses it, but they're not asked to partake in it. Um, you know, they echo pieces back instead of saying the full prayer. Mourner's Kaddish, uh, you know, is this beautiful prayer that depending on the community you're in, you either say it in Hebrew and, and don't know the English words and just know that it's what you should be saying because you are someone who's mourning someone, or uh, it's been translated in, in interesting ways to English. And as a conservative Jew, the tradition is you really only stand um, and say the prayer if you're actively mourning. And the community chimes in to basically say amen a few times throughout as if to witness you in your grief. My own practice has been to always stand and say it because I think that there's always someone who's not being mourned, someone who's being forgotten, and someone needs to be standing for them. So with that exception, you don't talk about death. You're not even really talking about death then. Mourner's Kaddish isn't really about death. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I really question what we've done as a community to prepare each other for this or to hold each other in these in these moments and in this space when you are mourning when you are dying there's not a clear avenue you don't really know necessarily who to talk to where to go it's not a natural thing the dangers of politeness is such an incredible way of phrasing the construct that both protects us and keeps us from being able to fully know others it's making me think about our closest communities, what we share, what we keep to ourselves, and why. What Al mentioned about Judaism as a faith that encourages questioning and a faith that should be encouraging big hard questions that break into taboo spaces brought to mind the value of communal responsibility, or in Hebrew, achrayut, which comes from the root acher and means other. What could it look like to act on that responsibility? Maybe being a responsible community member means not being polite or nice, but rather leaning into the big stuff with kindness. This is a good time to mention that Al laughs when sharing personal things. I'm saying this now because you're about to hear them say something and it will come with a trademark giggle. After we had recorded and I was listening back to the interview, I asked Al if they wanted me to keep it in or edit it out. And I was happy they opted to keep it in because it's just so them. They also shared, the way I've learned to deal with social discomfort or anxiety is through humor. I was definitely the class clown in high school. And that what you're about to hear them share is a fact about their life and just a piece of the many pieces of their puzzle. So <laughs> um, I'm dying. Six years ago, uh, you know, a doctor told me that I had about, if I was lucky, I had five years to live, you know, do that math. I'm, I'm a little past my expiration date. And at the time it was, you know, I'm a, I'm a young person. I'm a mid-millennial, mid-older millennial, whatever, wherever I fall on that. And to hear that, uh, what really felt like truly the beginning of my adulthood in some ways was overwhelming. And my friends really like to joke when I was diagnosed and was getting all this terrible news, I have very morbid friends, but they would joke about how I was probably the worst person for this to be happening to, because I have 
a very severe phobia of death to the point where I avoid certain television shows or reading certain books. I avoid certain topics during this conversation. I'm, you know, I'll be careful about the words I use to not like freak myself out and, you know, go down a spiral. And I've, you know, learned to work around it as anyone with any phobia does. You, you learn to work around it. And I'm not afraid of the dying process. I'm just afraid of death itself, you know, and I think that stems a lot from, um, I was a caretaker for my mother for most of my young life and, and into my adulthood. And she's always been dying, going through this process of dying and yet has never, has not yet died. And I had to come to terms with her probably not being with us much longer over and over and over again. And it always felt like this thing separate from me. And so I actually realized very late in life that I too was going to die because I was so focused on my mother's death. And so I don't think that I had the typical stage you know, I, I recently tossed, talked to a stage psychologist who not, I wasn't in therapy, but as like a, as an interview about a paper I was writing. And, you know, she talked me through the stages of adolescence and how one of them is learning to grieve, essentially, like learning how to let go of things, the impermanence phase. And I think mine was a little stilted because of the role I had to play in my family. And so still now, uh, my friends know that when we're watching a movie and they're like really talking about death, everyone whips around and looks at me and they're like, are you about to have a panic attack? We need to leave this movie theater. Are you okay? And I'm like, I'm just going to shove popcorn into my face until I'm fine. Don't worry. You know, so you, you cope, you manage. So when I was diagnosed, all of them sort of laughed and they were like, wow, that's fucked up. You know, like you are the, the last person that that should be happening to right now. How are you going to even deal with this? And frankly, I went into such a deep stage of shock and denial uh, for our a year uh, that I really, I went through the motions of preparing to die and never actually thought about it. I knew that what you do when you're diagnosed with a life-threatening illness is that you start living for yourself, right? Like how many movies have taught me you're diagnosed with terminal cancer, you decide to travel the world, whatever it is, you know? So um, not having traveled the world money, I just quit my terrible job and, and got a different one. And it made me happy <laughs> and also, you know, didn't ask me to actually have to deal with my own, what, what was happening to me. So I have, um, uh, I have a progressive autoimmune disease called antisynthetase syndrome, and it's a very rare disease, very rare. They have no idea what causes it. Um, they don't know how many people in the world have it. It's a tiny community. We have found each other on Facebook uh, and it's a depressing group because people die. People die pretty regularly uh, and and it's sad and, and whatever. And people tend to be dying in their late 50s, late 60s, which is still young and is not is not their 30s. And so when I joined that group, I was still so overwhelmed by the idea, the injustice in my mind that I was dying so young. That that is what finally forced me to to reckon with my experience and to think, well, what do I want to do before that happens, and how do I want to talk about this? And I think I'm still on that journey, and I will be until I die. Uh, and you know, the reason I'm not dead right now is just a series of happy accidents. I should not have gone into remission. There was no reason for that to happen. I didn't take care of myself the way they told me that I needed to because they made it sound pretty bleak at the outset. They were like, it doesn't matter what you do. You're still going down this path. I have a very aggressive case of my autoimmune disease. And 
I worked. I worked hard. I am addicted to work. I love working. It brings me purpose and joy. My doctors told me not to. I refused. You know, it gives me a reason to push and to stay awake and to live. And I'm going to do that until I'm not capable of doing it anymore, which will come, you know, who knows when, sooner or later. Uh, so I, you know, didn't treat my body well. I went off the treatment because it just made me angry and paranoid and uh, scared and didn't actually help me feel better. They, you know, said wasn't helping. So I stopped taking it. Um, I listened to a lot of people who were into really woo-woo shit and made me drink, you know, a gallon of turmeric tea a day and shit like that. So great. Uh, did that help? I can't say for sure it did. I can't say for sure it didn't, you know? So who knows? Turmeric. You probably already picked up on the fact that Al is intentional and kind. They think a lot about other people and give space for big things. The way Al shares their story and how they share it with humor and grace is truly reflective of who they are. Because you won't hear Al do this until later, I'm going to take an editorial liberty on their behalf and give permission for all the feelings. There's no right way to feel after hearing someone share that they're dying, and I would invite you to take some time now or later and reflect on what Al's story brings up for you. Okay, stepping back in. So, turmeric tea. It may or may not have had health benefits, but what did Al's Jewish community offer them during this time? As soon as I was capable of accepting the fact that I was marching a little faster towards death than others, I started seeking out Jewish resources because it was also around the time in my life when I was starting to become active in the Jewish community. I you know, left the college to work at one table and I was pretty transparent very early on with the about the fact that I was sick. And that was because it had become pretty central to who I was. Uh, it is why I don't do much other than work anymore. You know, I'm tired. I want to just watch TV or read after work. I used to have a lot of side hustles. I used to be involved in a lot of things. I used to write things. And now I'm like, well, maybe sometimes, <laughs> mostly I will nap. Um, and when I searched out for those Jewish resources, at the time, there wasn't much, you know, there was not much. And what there was, was not for me. It was not for young people. I mean, I'm thinking about like the most moving experience I've been to so far about death is the death over dinner conversation. And even then, most of the people at my synagogue who signed up to be a part of that were much older. And I was the youngest person in the room by quite a bit. And they acted immediately as if I just couldn't understand it the way that they could understand it. And frankly, most of those people will outlive me. You know, they're in their late 60s, early 70s. They're all in perfect health. It is very likely that I have a, a couple of good years left and, and they have many more. So, you know, God willing. And so it was a very frustrating conversation because I had to, I had to out myself in this way that was painful of like, well, I'm, I'm dying and there's no way to do that in that conversation without that becoming like, oh, no, we have an expert in the room who's actually dying. And now we have to really cater to their feelings and thoughts. And that's not what I want. You know, I want us to, to be able to navigate this together and, and to, to recognize all of us are going to die, you know, like just because someone is slightly closer to it or not, all of us are going to do it. And it's a conversation that's obviously very painful for many people. But if you're signing up to already be in that space, you know, maybe lean into it a little bit more. While the majority of people will die at an older age, there are those who will die younger, 
And we do ourselves a disservice by not engaging with that knowledge and offering opportunities to be in conversation about death. A side note, Death Over Dinner is a fantastic resource for anyone who is curious about having an experience that dips below the surface and is ready to lean into it. So as someone who loves slash is addicted to work, I was curious to hear how Al was or wasn't able to bring their full selves into the workplace. What has been really challenging is figuring out how to tell people without it becoming the central focus of my relationship with them. And so at the job previous to this job, I had just been diagnosed. I started a new job. I waited a year before telling anyone, partially because I didn't want to be seen as vulnerable. I didn't want to be seen as a liability. And also because I wasn't sure how to talk about it yet. And when I finally did start telling colleagues, and I remember this so clearly, I told, I worked at a college. I told one of my colleagues who was a professor and a man in his early 70s. And he didn't say much when I told him. He was a man who was raised Jewish and then uh, became a Mennonite. We, We always had fascinating conversations in general about faith. But he didn't say much when I told him. He just sort of hugged me and left the conversation. And the next day brought me a book that had just come out that he had just read called When Breath Becomes Air. And if you're not familiar with this book, it is written by a neurosurgeon who is diagnosed with advanced lung disease. And I don't think this is a spoiler because it's used in the marketing. His wife ends up finishing writing the book because he dies before he can finish it. I did not want to read this book. I was not interested in receiving this as a gift. I thought, this is exactly what I'm afraid of. Now my relationship with this man is about the fact that I am dying of a lung disease. Great. So I still have not read all of that book. I have read pieces of it. And every time I start reading it, I think I could be reading this book or I could be reading some sort of raunchy romance that really holds on to life. And why? Why would I want to spend... I'm already dying. Why do I have to be the one to read this? Everyone around me should have to read this. You know, there's a there's a difference there. Noted, only raunchy romance novels for Al. And I want to nod to the bravery Al models. Being vulnerable in the workplace is not an easy task and something most of us struggle with for even simple things. Next, I posed a question that I was wrestling over whether or not I should ask. The question was roughly, can you share an example of a good way that someone responded to you when you shared that you're dying? We've all been there. Someone shares something that we just don't know how to respond to, and we're terrified of saying the absolute wrong thing. I hesitated asking it because I was asking Al to problem solve something that isn't their problem. It's ours. And we all know there's never one magical right response. We've all been on the receiving end of good and bad reactions to our own life things. I did ask the question, and what Al shared is a beautiful reminder to be mindful of the ones we love and to honor their many identities as parts of themselves and not the sole point of focus. I don't think that there's a perfect way to respond to someone when they're dying. I can tell, you know, it's so much easier, I think, with anything to say what's not good rather than what is good, right? So I spend a lot of my time thinking like, well, that didn't feel good. (laughs) And then sort of putting it in that bucket. I think the things that do feel good that I would say, at least for me, you know, and I think that's part of it is that every person is dying differently um, and different things bring people comfort or joy or whatever it is. But me, someone who's a 
uh, a little rough around the edges, but real gooey on the middle. Uh, if I were to describe myself, <laughs> uh, I think part of it is, you know, I'm a person who loves to laugh. I'm a person who I refuse to take, take things too seriously unless they're very serious things. And, you know, death is and isn't, it just is a fact, you know, it doesn't need to be either serious or not serious. And I think that's part of it is that before, you know, someone is dying, it's easy to make jokes about. And then once someone is dying, it's often very hard to include them in those same jokes. You know, you think, oh God, well, this is now a truth for you. Sure. Uh, that hasn't changed the fact that I have a terrible sense of humor and love dumb jokes. And so I think that's part of it is just like weaving it into parts of the way that you respond to someone rather than it becoming the way you respond to someone. I don't want my relationship with my very woo-woo aunt to go from her sending me uh, you know, articles about how the fluoride in the water is, you know, the end of our, of civilization uh, and me having to send her, you know, actual science back to suddenly her sending me only articles about how I might stop dying if I drink more green tea, you know, and that's it. That's the whole, the whole relationship with her now is just different ways to prevent death. Uh, and it has corrupted that, you know, like I think instead of enriching our relationship, which is very possible to do by having these open conversations, instead it has pushed it too far and it has become all consuming. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a couple of pieces to this. One, how do you respond to people in professional settings when you know that they're dying? That is the central question of my life right now, honestly, because I've decided to be more public about it. I share it with my colleagues, but in general, I don't think it's a well-known fact of my colleagues outside of my organization. And why not? You know, why, why wouldn't it be in the same way that I know some of my colleagues at other organizations have kids or really love their dogs or whatever else is creating the structure for their life right now? Why couldn't they know that sometimes I need to lay on the ground in the middle of the day and feel sorry for myself, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And I want that. I want that ability to enrich my relationships and to be able to say, hey, this is a fact. It's just something for you to know. So when you're entering conversations around death, I'm here. I'm here to have that conversation. I can speak from a particular perspective. And I'm willing to be a part of that, you know, and I think that that's the piece about identity, right? As a culture, we're having a lot of conversations right now uh, about how to define identity, how to invite identities into spaces, uh, you know, as a trans person, totally separate from whether or not I'm dying. Uh, you know, the question of, can you come and be the trans person on this panel is its own thing, right? Like, sure, I can. What is it about the trans perspective you want present there, you know? And similarly, like this is another facet of my identity. You know, you're not, you're not just getting me as a trans person. You're getting me as a trans person who's dying. I'm going to talk about both of those things. And so I think like making space for people to be more full human beings is part of what I hope to see, not just in professional spaces, but in friendships, in family spaces, whatever it is. Because this is one of those things that people like to just sweep right under the rug. It's one of those things that's like, that's hard to talk about. Let's not do it. I think about people who have cancer and the narrative around that is so often, well, you're going to beat it and not what your reality is in that moment of the possibility of not beating it, of the possibility of being in this limbo forever. And there's no version of that for me. I'm not, it's an autoimmune disease. 
unless someone gives me a new body and downloads everything over to that one, there's no change going on here, you know? So I think that's part of the hurdle that people have is they're like, whoa, I can't say, well, I hope you feel better. So what am I supposed to say? And I think one, people who are sick, frankly, need to give people permission to mess up, which I do. I give a lot of space for people to say weird things to me. And then for me to sit there and say, okay, let's interrogate that together. Why on earth would you say that weird thing to me? And people who are, who are not sick, who are not closer to death, need to maybe be a little more honest about what they're feeling in that moment. When you say, I want you to feel better, is one, that you want me to feel better. That's nice. And two, that you're so uncomfortable with the presence of the reminder of mortality in this conversation that you just want it to be over. You just want to put a stamp on it and it be done. And for me, that's not possible. It is always present for me. So it's going to be present in this conversation, whether or not people want it to be. A month ago, I was on a Zoom call with a financial advisor. And I said to him, here are the facts of my my life. Uh, I recognize that for most people my age, you're advising us to you know, really put money in a retirement fund. Let me tell you why that's not going to make any sense for me. And his response was, well, you never know what's going to happen to science. You could be cured tomorrow, and then you'll be sad you don't have money in, in a retirement fund. And you know what? Sure, he's not wrong. I don't know what's going to happen to science. The fact of the matter is that like, science in general has not been great at figuring out how to even treat autoimmune diseases, let alone cure them. So very unlikely. But also it's his job, right? His job is to make sure that I'm financially secure. And he has certainly not been trained to have to deal with this person who's like, yeah, but what if I'm only planning like for like five to seven more years? What about that then? You know, I want to take care of my spouse, but also what if I want to just spend all my money? How does that sound to you? He's terrified of me. That's not a person he wants to work with. And so it's things like that where I'm like, I know why you're saying this, but don't say that. And then there are the people who really you just are like, where did that come from? Like I talked to someone who's a friend of a friend. And she said, I heard that you, um, I heard that you're sick. And I think she was expecting me to be like, yeah, I've got allergies. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm dying of this autoimmune disease. And she said, well, you know, we just need to pray on it. And as a Jew, I was confused because I was like, aren't you Jewish? What? What is that response there? And she was like, yeah, but you know, God works in mysterious ways. And again, as a Jew, I was like, this is weird. This is what my Catholic grandmother likes to say to me. I don't know why I'd be praying on this. Let's imagine that I believe in a, a God who's listening to individual prayers. Wouldn't he have also been, and I, I am using the male pronoun here because if I'm imagining a, a God who is listening to individual prayers, I'm sort of imagining Santa. So let's imagine Santa takes my letter and is like, hey, I'd like to be not sick anymore. He's gonna write back and be like, fuck you, I made you sick. You know, why wouldn't that be the same thing? Why wouldn't that be the same dude? I just don't understand. So I, I didn't respond well, I'll say, to that conversation. I was like, uh, okay, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I just sort of stared at her for a second and nodded a lot and then totally changed the subject because there was nothing to, I'm not trying to destroy her belief system, but it's also just completely baffling to my own, you know? So I, we read an impasse. Next, we got to talking about rituals. There's magic in rituals. And I wanted to know if there are ones that Al has found comfort and meaning in these last few years. Al started from a surprising place and beautifully wove together love, time, and marking moments. So I am engaged to a wonderful woman named Molly. I I truly think that she is just, whatever, to get very sappy. 
I had a very hard life for a long time and it all feels worth it for having met her. And I really love, um, unironically, the country song, uh, God Bless the Broken Road that led me to you. Uh, I, in fact, have had it printed and framed for our bedroom. And Molly is just so upset because she doesn't like it, even ironically. Uh, But it is meaningful to me because it feels true. And... And Molly uh, is not good at grief. It is not something she has any space in her heart for. When other people are grieving, she's a middle child. I think this needs to be said. She's a middle child. Her entire life has been about making the people around her happy and get along with each other and not upset. And so when we veer into the topic of, okay, I am dying, there is a limited space in her heart for having that conversation, which in some ways has actually been good for me. I think I can get a little melodramatic and a little morose at times. Molly was also raised Mormon and is now Jewish. And there is something about the Mormons. They really know something about joy. They are really interested in being happy people. She's held on to that part, I will say. (laughs) So I think it's been good for me in the sense that even while we're being responsible and planning for my death, I have I have a very extensive uh, advanced directive to the point where I talk about how many Joni Mitchell and Brandi Carlisle songs need to be played and when. The fact that there will only be white hydrangeas if any other flowers are present, I will come back, so help me. And so we, ha- we are being responsible. We're financially planning for it, even though it's an unknown, you know, even though it could be tomorrow, it could be... I could somehow get very lucky and have another decade in me, you know, and we just don't know that. And so we're trying to be very careful either way. And even while that's happening, she's so uninterested in focusing on it, right? Like it's, it is a part of life and that's the way she definitely treats it. It's like, well, this is, she's not afraid of death even a little bit. It's just not something that she has in her body at all. And so for her, you know, we're spending this time together and we're going to get the absolute most out of it. She's not ready to start grieving and being the grieving widow before I've actually died. So that's been really powerful for me, honestly. And I think before meeting Molly, Molly and I have been together for two and a half years now. And before meeting Molly, um, I think I was trying to find a lot of rituals that were very solemn and very serious uh, because it spoke to the like feeder kid dramatic part of me. The part that like Yom Kippur is my favorite holiday, you know where we pretend that we are dead, we lay on the ground and remind ourselves that we are mortal. That has always really, I'm like, yes, everyone should be as afraid of death as I am. We should all lay here on the ground and really feel that reality together, which perhaps unsurprisingly, Molly has no interest in doing that part of She's always like, why, why are we laying on the dirty ground? That's not what on earth, you know, polar opposites there. Uh, so before Molly, I was, I was really searching out a lot of those, you know, I was creating rituals for myself where every time I was in extreme pain and my disease is a real motherfucker it causes a lot of pain uh i would sort of catalog that in a way where i was like look how strong i am <laughs> i've made it through another pain ooh i'm invincible and it was it was not a it's not something i would like you know i wouldn't publish that journal it's pretty it's like an emo kid wrote a a really weird pain journal uh and now now in this life that i'm living currently and and being with molly I'm finding more ways to ritualize the joy 
and to uh, mark time in a way that is meaningful. I think, you know, I spent a lot of my life uninterested in birthdays. And now I'm like, wow, that's actually such a powerful ritual. We don't talk about how powerful that is. You know, it, we, it's seen as very, a lot of people feel bad about their birthday because it reminds them they're aging or it's just, you know, why focus on me for a day? It feels selfish, whatever it is. And instead I'm like, wow, you fucking beat death for another year. Look at you. You're alive. You're alive for a whole another year. Why don't you? And what a beautiful thing. Even if death was just determined by how many years had passed and you were marching closer to it because of that, that's also kind of a beautiful thing, right? Like what more have you learned in this year that is going to bring you comfort and joy and a way of dealing with your mortality in a way that you didn't have in the previous year? So I think I'm, I'm digging more into that, into how do I mark time? How do I mark the fact that I'm accepting that I am dying and I'm finding ways to enjoy my time that's left and to be comfortable? And yeah, I might be in a shit ton of pain, but I'm also so blessed. And that's really meaningful. That means more than anything else. And then I was curious to hear Al's thoughts about Jewish rituals surrounding death. Having done the research, (laughs) the Jewish death rituals to me are both fascinating and a little terrifying. Uh, I think about the washing the body quite often. I am a conservative Jew. I converted to conservative Judaism. I am covered in tattoos. And plenty of conservative rabbis are like, whatever, you know, who cares? Uh, But there's this thing that has happened inside of my body where I'm like, oh, I'm embarrassed for dead me. I'll be dead and they'll come to wash my body and they'll be like, wow, Al has some dumb tattoos. That's real dumb. And I'd like to remind those people, whoever they may be in the future, that I was once young. I was once young and not yet, you know, really my brain wasn't formed fully and I made some interesting mistakes. Yes, I have a Wiley Coyote tattoo. Which, why? 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 I couldn't tell you the answer to that. And I will not be there to defend that choice when my body is being washed. And that makes me a little, feel a little weird. You know, I won't be there to stand before my judges and say, hey, well, I was 18 years old and my best friend told me to. How will they know? Um, So that one doesn't feel so spiritual for me, more anxiety inducing, which is hilarious because why? I will be dead, but I can't tell you. It's just really ingrained in there. Uh, The piece that I've found, and Frankly, I don't actually know that this is real, but I've seen this in enough Jew- movies about Jews that I'm now going to uh, make it happen whether or not it's real. Uh, but placing the stone on the grave the like year after or however much time after someone has died. And I'll tell you what's powerful to me about this, this thing that I have just assumed is a Jewish thing. Um, growing up Catholic, growing up half Catholic and half Jewish, I was never involved in the fun or meaningful Jewish rituals. I got to be there for Passover. Yeah, Passover to me is the least exciting holiday, uh, which is maybe unfair to people who love Passover and Passover itself, but I never got to learn about like the ritualization of time in other ways, except for from Catholics. And Catholics are wonderful people and I love my Catholic family. The way that they do Irish Catholics, that should be noted because different kinds of Catholics, very different. Irish Catholics, who are a particular breed, uh, have wakes when someone dies and you get very drunk and you eat a lot of food and you say all the things you loved about that person and you dance and it's joyous. And to me, that is not what I want. I want people weeping. I want the tearing of clothes. I want the laying on the ground, the cover, like a shiva. Yes, I can't wait 
for my Shiva. I will not be there, but I will feel good that I'm being marked in this way of people weeping, wailing, keening even. I would take some keening. I want my life to be mourned. And then later you can remember all the joy that I have brought into the world. But I cry. When people die who are close to me, it is painful. I have lost something. I've lost their presence. And I will hold on to their memory. And that will be such a source of comfort and joy. But in that moment of really letting your body go through and process, the wailing for me is really important. So that is important. And then also growing up, my Catholic family, after having such a wake, would never re-engage with the grief because for my family, they were going to peace. They were going to be in heaven. They were going to be comforted. They were no longer in pain. And so we never visited their graves again. We would see them when they were interred and that was it. I'm sure other Catholics do it differently, but for my family, that's the way it went. And so in Judaism, this idea that there is a, you know, a yearly reminder to revisit that grief, to not only remember that person, but to check in with yourself and say, where am I in my grief process? Where am I in my learning to honor their memory? That is really powerful to me. There are many explanations and possible reasons about why Jews place stones on graves. Growing up, I always thought we left a stone as a symbol to other living people that this person who has died hasn't been forgotten. The ritual of visiting the graves of our dead is powerful, and Al offered up something more for that moment by asking us to check in with ourselves with the question, where am I in my grief process? In this way, by returning year after year, we can mark time, growth, and healing. Last year, Al and I were talking about death and dying, and they shared that people ask a lot of questions about how they're doing and feeling. But then they said, you know what they don't ever ask? What am I most proud of in my life? Or what will I miss the most? So I asked, Al, what will you miss the most? What has become very clear to me in this pandemic is the thing that if you can miss something after you're dead, the thing that I would miss the most is all the quiet moments or all of the quiet moments. I was sitting in the car with my partner. We were parked and we had the windows down and the breeze was going and we weren't doing anything. You know, it was just a finally a sunny day here in the otherwise tundra of Chicago. And I just started crying because I thought, this is it. This is what this is what has brought me joy is the ability, the privilege of having quiet moments. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I have worked in my life to the point where I can comfortably sit in my car with my partner in quiet and just be. With love and gratitude to Al for this conversation and all our conversations. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.